Well, what's, what's the plan? What's his plan? We've been following the Lord Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. If you have a Bible, please open to the book of Matthew and go to chapter 4. We've seen at this point that Jesus meets the credentials for the king of Israel. He was anointed as king in his baptism. He withstood the great test of Satan and he sets up his outpost in the region of Galilee and he calls men to his service. It seems as though he is gearing up for ministry and we might ask the question, what's his plan? What is he going to do? What will he spend his life doing and what will he commit himself to? When a friend heard that um, I got the job as the teaching pastor of Summit Bible Church, he asked me the same question. He said, so what's the plan? I said, what do you mean, what's the plan? I, you know, I got hired on in this position. He goes, what's your plan? You have to have a strategy, a ministry plan. And I thought to myself, uh, I, I don't have one of those. So I, I went to my mentor, uh, my pastor, Chris Mueller, and I said, what's my plan? What do I do? And he made it really simple for me. He said, Morgan, really simple. Preach the Bible, love the people. Preach the Bible, love the people. And so I've been endeavoring to do that for the past year and a half, and I I know I want to strive and do better in that, preaching the Bible, loving the people. What about Jesus' ministry? Is it similar I think it is. What was his plan and how did he execute it? Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus is the King, the Christ, and the Messiah. And so some might expect him to have a great political campaign, to be gathering support, to commandeer support. Some might think, well, first he needs to win the influence of the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council in Israel. Then he needs to go and campaign in and around Jerusalem, maybe set up a a post in the temple square, to go throughout Judea and then to Galilee and the Decapolis. He needs military support if he's going to reign as king. He needs the youngest, the healthiest, the brightest. And once he builds his army, he then should develop a strategy to take back the land of Canaan and to eventually take over the Roman Empire, which is ruling at this time. One might think that that would be his plan. That would be his great strategy as king. But what do we see Jesus do in this passage? We see him teaching, 
preaching, and healing. In a land of foreigners, Galilee, for the sake of sick, afflicted, and oppressed people. In essence, we see Jesus preaching the Bible and loving the people. That's what he does. He prefers a preaching platform, not a political campaign. He prioritizes the actual needs of the people and not the influence of the priesthood or the aristocracy. This is the king's ministry. Teaching, preaching, and healing. Those are his three pillars. That's what he commits himself to do during his life before his death. And Matthew really shows us kind of a summary outline of the next section of his gospel. He starts to organize events, not necessarily chronologically, but according to theme. We'll see in the next two chapters, chapters 5 through 7, it focuses on the teaching and preaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And then in chapters 8 and 9, just afterwards, it focuses on his healing. There are various accounts of him healing and casting out demons. Really, the capstone of, the, of that section is Matthew 9.35, which says the exact same thing that we read in 4.23. Matthew 9.35 says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So Matthew really shows us, he's here to show us, that Jesus, by his teaching, preaching, and healing, is the true king. That he has the authority to forgive sin and to heal people. To essentially reverse the curse. And that he loves people. He knows what they really need. Even the outcast. The foreigner, the afflicted, the oppressed, the weak, the hurting, the wounded, the sick, and the diseased. Now, will Israel receive this compassionate king? We'll see. But the question for us today, as we watch Jesus teach and heal and preach, is will we receive this compassionate king? Will we receive him for who he is, what he taught, and what he did? If he does what the Bible tells us that he does, how does it change your life? And will you follow him? So, three pillars of Jesus' ministry, they make up the points of our outline. Point number one, teaching. Teaching. We first find Jesus teaching. Look at verse 23 the beginning again, he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues. Now, I have a definition for teaching. Put simply, it's explaining the Scriptures. Explaining the Scriptures. Jesus did this all the time. All the time. Was quoting Scripture and explaining its meaning. He, he's going to do that in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll hear him multiple times say, uh, you've heard it said, and then he'll quote an Old Testament passage, and then he further explains what that means. This is what 
Ezra sought to do in the Old Testament. Ezra 7.10 says, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So notice the process there. Ezra studies the Bible. He applies the Bible in his own life first, and then he explains it. He teaches it to others. This is what the rabbis attempted to do in the synagogues. It was supposed to be the synagogues that we see Jesus teaching in. They were supposed to be the place where people could come and hear good Bible teaching, faithful explanation of the Scriptures. But what we see is that the rabbis were doing a really bad job of it. And Jesus calls them out. You remember, he calls out Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, a rabbi, he says, aren't you a teacher? Don't you know this? And he exposes that Nicodemus didn't know really anything about regeneration, which he should have known if he really was a teacher. Jesus calls out the Pharisees who, he says, they sit in the seat of Moses, claiming to be experts of the law, but they place unnecessary burdens on people. And they don't even apply the law in their own life at all. They don't do what Ezra sought to do. But they're bad teachers. Bad teachers. And so the synagogues in Jesus' time had become a place of spiritual abuse, not scriptural explanation, not spiritual nutrition. And so Jesus goes in to reverse all that. He's going in to be a good teacher of the Scriptures. And and how does He do? How is Jesus at teaching? Well, let's just look at the response of the people as they hear His teaching. Matthew 7, 28-29. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Matthew 13, 54. And coming to His hometown, He taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get the wisdom and these mighty works Finally, Matthew twenty-two thirty-three. 33, when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus' teaching resulted in jaws dropping. It was really good. Helpful. Not just helpful, impactful. Jesus knew the Bible and he knew how to explain it. No Bible expert could stump Jesus. They came at him with questions. Theology questions, practical questions, and they could not stump him. The Herodians, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, they all tried. Matthew twenty-two forty-six says, No one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him more questions. They failed at stumping this master teacher, Jesus Christ. He knew the Scriptures. He explained the Scriptures in a way that was compelling. And He fulfilled the Scriptures. Not only said it, but He did it. 
perfectly. As Ezra sought to do that, Jesus did it perfectly. It's almost as if he, he wrote them. It's almost as if he is the Logos, the Word manifest. And he is. We know that from the Scriptures. John chapter 1. An interesting note as I was studying for this. In the Old Testament, when God gave Israel instructions for their king, God gave them instructions for what the king was supposed to do and what the king should not do. And it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 17. If you read Deuteronomy 17, 16 through 20, you'll see three negative commands. Don't do this. Make sure your king does not do X, Y, and Z. And then you'll see really one positive command. The king should devote himself to this. So let's go through these real quick. The the king must not acquire many horses. In other words, don't build up your army. Don't trust in your chariots. Trust God. He'll take care of the nation of Israel. So he must not acquire horses. Don't build up the army. That's number one. The second negative command, he shall not acquire many wives. Now wives, um, in ancient times, didn't just function on the level of um, sexual fulfillment, but also of interpolitical relations. Uh, You marry a wife from another nation to develop a friendship and to develop another ally, if you will. So this is another way to establish uh, military power and prestige in ancient times. And so, again, don't fall into sexual sin. Do not acquire many wives. This will ruin you. And if you acquire a wife from a pagan nation, you're going to receive and start to worship their idols, which we saw the kings do. Okay, so not many horses, not many wives. And thirdly, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Again, don't trust in the material wealth of the world. Trust God. He will provide for you. He'll take care of your needs. So three forbidding commands, and then there is one positive command. This is what the king needs to do. Look at this. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, verse 18, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of, of the law, approved by the Levitical priests, verse 19, it shall be the word with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and his statutes and do them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the the commandment or the word, either the right hand or the left. So that, do this, king, so that he may continue long in the kingdom. He and his children in Israel. See, the strength of Israel's kingdom depended on their king, not in his war capabilities, not in his relationships with women, not in his accumulation of wealth, The strength of Israel's kingdom depended on their king and his knowledge of the word. That he would know it and do it. 
That was what was most important from God to the king. This book, the scriptures. Now, we know every king in Israel failed at one, if not all three of these points. Especially Solomon. Solomon failed in all three. And we see, as a result of Solomon's death, the divide in Israel's kingdom. Every king in Israel failed except one. The true king. Jesus Christ. Who knew God's word, understood it, studied it, and applied it to his life perfectly. Jesus is the true King. Knew the Word, applied the Word, and fulfilled the Word in His life. I just want to encourage you, saints, as we look at God's Word and we see Jesus Christ, the unfailing One, the perfect King. If Bible teaching is front and center in the ministry of Jesus and the success of the King... How important is it for us to know God's Word and to apply it in our lives? This is the King's book. There's not a greater curriculum that we can look to for guidance in life and for instructions on how to live our life. This book has it all. The Bible is sufficient and profitable in every way of our life. I just want to point out that I don't believe Jesus took any shortcuts in his accumulation of Scripture knowledge. In other words, I don't believe Jesus pulled the God card and said, okay, I'm ready at the age of 12 to receive all the knowledge of God in the Scriptures. You know what we found Jesus do as he developed as a young man? Sitting in the synagogue, learning the Bible just like everybody else. Now, yes, he is God. And yes, that wisdom that came as he grew and developed is significantly far greater than ours. But I think Jesus, limiting himself and becoming a man, went through the same steps that you and I go through when we study God's Word. And that as we see him develop in Luke chapter 2, we see him grow in the same way that we do. He grew in wisdom and in stature. What an example! What an example, a forerunner for us. Jesus devoted himself to the scriptures in the same way that any of us would. He sat under good Bible teaching and he himself studied the scriptures to know more, to grow, and to apply it in his life. The same resource is offered to you. It sits often untouched and dusty on your nightstand. This is the king's book. Read it. Know it and apply it in your life. Bible teaching is important. And Jesus did it perfectly. All right, let's move to point number two, preaching. Jesus not only taught the word, but he preached. Proclaim is the word that you see in verse 23. It's the same uh, Greek word that we would translate to preaching. He proclaimed. Now there's a difference between teaching and preaching. Here's my definition of preaching. Simple. Exhorting the Scriptures. 
Not just an explanation of Scriptures, but exhorting the Scriptures. You can tell with my tone, there's a little bit of a nuance difference here. To exhort means to strongly encourage or to urge someone to do something. I think there's a difference between teaching and preaching. And we we see here that Matthew distinguishes them as two different participles in this passage. He taught and he proclaimed. We have didasco and then we have keruso. Paul distinguishes these two in uh, 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Interesting, he tells Timothy, he says, Preach, keruso, the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, sorry, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Didasco, the other word. So we have in that same passage, Paul exhorting Timothy to preach with teaching. So here's the nuance. If you want to write down, all faithful preaching includes teaching. There includes a necessary explanation, but not all teaching is preaching. Not all teaching has that exhorting or that urging. And both are good, and both are necessary and helpful. Preaching includes pointed application, urging, correction, or strong encouragement for the listener. You could think of preaching as poking and prodding the heart with the Word of God. Kind of that urge, that poke, that conviction you feel, often a result of preaching. Now, it's not a manipulative way. We've got to avoid that. Sometimes preachers get all worked up and emotional, but they're not explaining the Word of God. They fail because they're not teaching. But a good preacher, faithful preaching, will explain the text and exhort it. Exhort it with conviction, with passion, with power. The power of the Holy Spirit. That will always walk in accord with the truth. They called uh, Charles Spurgeon the prince of preachers. You know why? Because Jesus was the king of preaching. His Sermon on the Mount, what we're about to look at after the short break in the marriage and uh, family series, is arguably the greatest sermon ever preached. It is incredible. Jesus masterfully executes both teaching and preaching. He goes from, you've heard X, but I say Y, and he explains, that's good Bible teaching, but then he turns to the heart, and he gives these just cutting commands, these urges. He says, leave your gift at the altar and be reconciled with your brother before you make a sacrifice. Wow. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. That'll preach. Do not take an oath, but let what you say be a simple yes or no. Be faithful to your word. If anyone sues you, he says, take and takes your tunic, give him your cloak as well. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Passage by passage, there's application, there's urging, there's correction, and there's encouragement. Every turn in his sermon cuts our hearts. 
But what do we see as the major theme of Jesus' preaching? Go back to our text. Look at verse 23. What did he proclaim? The gospel of the kingdom. That's the theme. What did Jesus preach? What's the theme of his preaching? It was the gospel of the kingdom. That is, the good news of the kingdom. And we see all his preaching, especially in the rest of Matthew, focuses on this theme. The theme of the kingdom. The word kingdom is used 50 plus times in the Gospel of Matthew. A prominent theme. Jesus preaches this theme. And remember Jesus' first words, we heard him say, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So Jesus preached the kingdom. He preached the imminence of his kingdom. He preached the repentance required to enter the kingdom. He preaches the value of his kingdom. The difference between his kingdom and the kingdom of this world. The character of kingdom citizens. He preaches with urgency the readiness required for those who anticipate the coming kingdom. And this is all good news. Jesus' kingdom is better than this one. It's the reverse of this broken and shattered kingdom that we all live in. Jesus' kingdom is far better. And he preaches that. He preaches it as good news. And Jesus ultimately gives us access to this better kingdom by making the perfect sacrifice. I just heard recently a friend of mine, we were talking about the kingdom and how it's just a prominent theme in the scriptures. And when we think about the kingdom, we think about a king, we think about a people, and we think about the place that he will rule. And we believe that that is a future kingdom, that one that we still anticipate from this point of history. It's still coming. And a friend told me, and this was really helpful for me to understand, he said, you know, it is a literal and a physical kingdom that is entered through a spiritual door. What did he mean by that? In order to go into the kingdom to enter the future kingdom that's coming, you must be spiritually transformed. You must believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith. Be saved by Him. And that is a spiritual transformation that happens from the inside out. Your heart is transformed. You're born again and then it causes you to live differently. You live as a citizen of a new kingdom. And so Jesus came to provide access to open the door to his kingdom, if that makes sense, by offering a perfect sacrifice, living the perfect life we couldn't live, dying in our place and raising again from the dead. And if you believe in that, then you will be transformed from the inside out, becoming a citizen of his future kingdom. So this is good news. This is the, the way to heaven. This is eternal life to know Christ and be with Him forever. Jesus says, don't seek the fleeting kingdom of this world. Seek first His kingdom. His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. I mean, do we really preach anything different today? We're, still, we're taking on Jesus' theme of preaching the good news of the kingdom even today. That's what we preach. We preach the gospel. We preach the good news of Jesus Christ who came to this earth 
Again, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and He's coming back. And we're telling everybody about that. We're telling everybody the good news. Enter into His kingdom by the door, Jesus Christ. He says, I am the door. Through Him, you can have eternal life and be ushered into His better, greater kingdom. If you're fed up with this world, join the club. We all are. The suffering, the pain, the toil. Look to the kingdom of Jesus that's coming. It's a sweeter place. A better place. Trust in Him for salvation. So Jesus taught, He preached, and thirdly, we see Jesus heal. Healing is a major, major distinct pillar in His ministry. Now, here's my definition for healing, and it's a mouthful. I think it's important. Jesus is healing, and you could probably add more to this definition. It was supernatural. It was sudden. It was obvious. And it was undeniable. Restoration of health. Supernatural, sudden, obvious, and undeniable restoration of health. Immediately, you should note that all the healings you watch on YouTube don't fit this criteria. Jesus' healing was supernatural, it was sudden, it was obvious and undeniable. Jesus did not go around fixing back pain or kinked necks. Jesus didn't make nausea disappear, take away a headache or perform optical illusions, like making one leg extend longer than the other. Jesus' healings, again, were supernatural. They were sudden, obvious, and undeniable. Look at the kind of people that Jesus healed. Look at verse 24. So His fame spread throughout all Syria. They brought Him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains. That word for pains could be translated torture. Or torment. These were big, obvious pains that people were in. Those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, he healed them. We're talking about people who couldn't walk and now they can. We're talking about people who could not see and now they can. Blind from birth and they opened their eyes for the first time. People with Fatal disease like leprosy that literally eats a human being alive. He reversed it. People with a fatal disease now have no trace of it in their body. People who were dead, but who were made alive by the power of Jesus Christ. Supernatural, sudden, obvious, and undeniable. Why did Jesus heal? Why did He do it? Why was this so important in his ministry? Was it all just a show? Was it for Jesus to come and and flex his muscles and say, look at how powerful I am. Let's look at three reasons why Jesus healed. Number one, the healings of Christ validated his authority. It was like the stamp on Jesus' life. Yes, he is God. Yes, he does have power over sin and sickness. And it validated his authority and his teaching. 
Nicodemus told Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. How do we know? He says, for no one can do these signs. No one can heal like you can. Matthew 9, chapter 8, when the crowd saw his miracles, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Miracles and healings for Jesus Christ validated his authority. He truly was of God, from God. The divinely anointed king. It was not simply for the purpose of awe and amazement. Even the apostles in the book of Acts, the signs and wonders that they performed were for the purpose of validating their message. It was not just these arbitrary, random show-offs of personality or power. Hebrews 2.4 tells us God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. See, the signs and wonders of Jesus were intended to produce faith so that they would believe. But Jesus rebukes the people because they sought the signs for another reason. They wanted the benefits. They wanted the food that Jesus made. They wanted their body to feel better, but they didn't truly receive Christ as King and Savior. Some believed, but many followed Him for the wrong reasons. To see the show. To see Jesus like following around a a magician or a performer, but they didn't recognize Him as King. Some did. Many didn't. Number two, the healings of Christ gave tastes of his coming kingdom. They gave us, they gave the people a taste of his coming kingdom. The prophet Isaiah describes the kingdom of God. And look at the description of the kingdom. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall the lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams into the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool. The thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Jesus, or Jesus really God, describing through the prophet His coming kingdom. It's described as a wonderful place, a green place, a lush place. A lush land that has been revived and restored and and disease and sickness is taken away. Jesus, when He came in His first advent, His first coming, He gave little tastes of what that future kingdom will be like. He showed that He truly was the King that is going to come and bring that future kingdom and offered tastes, sweet morsels of what His future kingdom will be like, where He will Listen to this. Take away forever sickness, disease, suffering. All those things that make our lives so miserable, Jesus takes away and restores and reverses in His coming kingdom. So the healings of Christ validated His authority. The healings of Christ gave taste of His coming kingdom. And thirdly, I don't want us to miss this, the healings of Christ demonstrated His compassion. The healings of Christ demonstrated His compassion. 
I want you to read these verses and don't read them with thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, I knew that. Yeah, Jesus is nice. Jesus is loving. Jesus loves me. I want you to read these with fresh eyes, seeing Jesus' compassion. Look at these verses, Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 15, 32, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now for three days and they've got nothing to eat. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Matthew 20, verse 34, Jesus in pity, that same word, compassion, touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Compassion, 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 compassion. Jesus doesn't arbitrarily heal people to flex his divine muscles or to show off. His heart rushes to relieve pain and suffering. Compassion moved the king to the broken and the hurting. The sick who needed a physician. When he sees the effects of the curse, sin, the result of sin, is suffering, pain, and death. When he sees the effects, he's moved to tears. Despite his power to reverse it. The account that strikes me is the account of Lazarus. Lazarus dies. He was dead. And Jesus then approaches the tomb. He approaches Lazarus' family. And we know he's God. He's, pl- he's come to revive Lazarus, to raise him from the dead, to bring him back to life. But what does he do before he does that? He looks at the family mourning, and he looks at the suffering, and the king weeps. Isn't that striking? That Jesus, knowing he was going to raise this man from the dead, still weeps over his loss and the suffering that he sees, the effects of death cause in Lazarus' family. He sees the hurt in their hearts, and in effect, he feels that hurt in his. That's who Jesus is. He has compassion. When your heart hurts, he hurts with you through suffering. He's compassionate and sympathetic. I want you to think about a very difficult trial or tragedy that you've gone through. It's tempting to think in the midst of that, and some of you have maybe even said it out loud, nobody knows what I'm going through. Suffering is lonely, and oftentimes it leaves you feeling isolated Like nobody knows, nobody sympathizes with me. You need to know today that Jesus does. He's able to sympathize unlike any other person. Jesus knows loss. 
He knows it better than any of us do. He can sympathize with you. He knows what it's like to hurt in the heart. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be abandoned by friends and family. He knows what it's like to die. And because of that, He can sympathize with you and I through very, very difficult times. He's right there. He's right there. When when you think nobody else knows what I'm going through, you need to remember that Jesus does and He's there with you if you're in Him, if you believe in Him. That's why He's the best place to go to when the trial comes. When life gets hard, there's not a better place to go than to Jesus Christ who knows and who has compassion for you and the hurt in your heart. I want to encourage you to rush to the heart of Jesus Christ whose heart rushes to relieve your pain. He may not change the circumstance. He may not bring back your lost loved one. He may not reverse the diagnosis physically, but understand that He does promise to relieve the pain in your heart and provide the rest that you need for your soul. Matthew eleven, twenty-eight. Why don't you turn there in your Bible? I want you to read it from the pages of the Bible in front of you. This is Jesus' heart for those who are suffering, heavy laden, under Significant burdens of life. Here's what Jesus says to you today. Matthew eleven twenty eight. A familiar passage. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Bind yourself to me. Learn from me, for... I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke that Jesus is describing here is not the one you find in the middle of an egg. The yoke that he's describing here is one that you would find cattle in when they are yoked together. There is a big wooden beam that goes over both of the cattle. This is describing, Jesus is saying, bind yourself to me. Come to me. Embrace me. Come into relationship with me. And guess what you'll find? I'm gentle. Give me your burden. I'll carry it for you. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Many of you today are carrying heavy burdens. You're suffering Your heart is heavy, and even as I describe that, you have this visceral response. You know what it means to suffer. And it's a variety of different sufferings that we all experience. Each of our suffering is different, and it it carries a different kind of weight on our lives and hearts. But each one of us has suffered uniquely. And Jesus tells us, come to me with that. I know. I know. Jesus has compassion. Compassion to relieve you of your suffering. The suffering in your heart. Would you go to Him today with that? 
Would you go to Christ who showed us, demonstrated his love in that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he showed that to be true by his life and ministry. He went around preaching, teaching, and healing, meeting the needs of all who were sick, afflicted, and oppressed. What an incredible man, the God-man, who showed us what it's like to truly minister to people, to preach the Bible, and to love the people. He's worth following. He's worth surrendering to and giving your life to. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to display and demonstrate true love. God, we see the wonderful Christ who was so selfless and people-oriented in his ministry. Lord, it just encourages me to follow him, to give my life to him, to surrender my life to a man who knows what it's like to suffer and yet endured it perfectly. The God-man who made the perfect sacrifice for my sins, Jesus Christ, and gave me access to his kingdom, gave me a future, an eternal future with him forever. I pray for anybody in this room, God, who knows that they're sinners separate from you, that they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but they know they need one. I pray that you would change their hearts now. You convict them of sin and that they would trust in Jesus Christ, the only King and Savior. That they would surrender their life to Him and follow Him and experience the true joy and the comfort that only Jesus can provide. God, I pray for believers in this room. As we watch Christ, we see the priorities of His ministry. I pray that we would make those the priorities in our own life, especially knowing You by understanding the Scriptures and growing in our knowledge of You through the Scriptures. Help us, Lord, as we endeavor to do that. Even this week, in Jesus' name, amen.